Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come, come in. Yes, save the cool. Yes, yes, oh yes. We keep it a bit chilly in here. It um, helps preserve things. And I like it that way. So does Cecilia, so too do Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, and his lovely companion, the fair Ms. Tabitha. So you may need a wrap as summer progresses, so you could leave a sweater here if you'd rather not truck about with a pound of fuzzy wool on your body when temperatures are in the hundreds out there on the streets. Oh, in case you wondered, yes, you are welcome. My name is Lawrence Santoro, and if you buzzed for me, you buzzed for the nook and buzzed correctly. This is that place, and now is Tales to Terrify time, show number 71 time. 71. Another decade of shows complete, and we begin our eighth decade of weeks. So, relax, have drink, have treats, find a chum, and be at your ease. Comfortable? Of course you are. I have put some new art on our Facebook page this time. This came in over the transom, offered us through the good offices of the writer-narrator of tonight's first tale. The image which has been presented to us is called Hunger. It looks like hunger, doesn't it? And the artist, well... He is known as the Cosmic Goose, that's all one word, but he operates in the world as Nolan Segrist. Nolan is a freelance graphic designer and illustrator living in northern Alabama. His interests include art, pagan spirituality, animation, comic books, role-playing games, and making art that makes one question the existence of a sane and rational god. 
So, stop by the Tales to Terrify Facebook page. Have a look. And as suggested, our first bit of entertainment tonight is a piece of short fiction from Polish author Matt Neputin. And it deals with, yes, hunger. I'll let you listen to Mr. Neputin's story first, then we'll hear more. The story is called Shared Hunger. I'm all alone in this world. That's just how I was born. And I cannot do anything about it now, because I'm old. And so everyone expects me to do everything on my own. And no one will come up to me and start up a conversation. So I have no choice but to be alone. And that's why I'm poor. Because you need to be able to relate with other people to make money. So what can I do now? Not much. Only sit in my small hat. And wait for a moment when everything will be all right. All I can do is hope for it to happen, even though in the back of my mind I know it never will. And so I wait while observing my breath. And now I'm not meditating this way, I'm sinning by thinking of either the past or the future, dreaming about having friends, money, and happiness. At times I try to be positive, looking at the silver lining. And more often than not, I do come up with a few ideas. At the very least, I'm alive, and I'm not fat because I can't find food. That thought has made me think about the one goal I have for each night, to find some food for the next day. Not having any money, it's rather hard because almost everything costs something, but I figured a way out of it. I sat down next to the butcher shop and made my business there. Then I hid in the bushes and waited. Waited for hours observing my breath and being present with the surroundings of the moment. And then I saw it, the object of my desire. Sweet, succulent meat of a pig without any bones being transported to the nearby store. I almost lost my concentration when I saw it for the first time. I almost revealed my presence by the sound of my excitement. But I managed to be quiet till I saw them tripping on the trap I had made for them. I did feel a bit sad when during their fall they let the meat fall. But I'm not a picky eater and so I ran as fast as I could up to them and stole the meat from them. It was so beautiful. Pink shiny and a bit of brown in certain spots that I decided to ignore because of my hunger. When I got home, another deal awaited me as I didn't have a place to cook it. The only thing that I had in my room that resembled a cooking stove in any fashion was an old lighter I found in a nearby trash can. So I just used that. I took this stained meat and lifted it up high using one of my hands. And then I put the lighter under it, holding it in my other hand. And in this way, I stood there for hours. The meat got warmer and warmer the more I stood. It felt good to feel the warm, reassuring sensation of another being, even if it was dead. And the cold flesh searched that purpose well, after it became warm, reminding me of the friends I never had. And in time, it became so warm it started to hurt. I wanted to hold it longer, but my arms became too tired. 
So I just let go, allowing the flesh to fall on the floor. And soon my body has followed because I was just too tired to stand. Now on the ground I wanted to let my consciousness go, but I couldn't because I knew that if I don't eat the meat as fast as possible, the numerous entities living on my ceiling will quickly come and occupy the meat, eating it, making me miss yet another meal. And so I gathered all the strength that I had left. Having none in any of my limbs, I just used my pelvis and stomach to throw my body into the air. And millimeter by millimeter, I got closer to the meat. With each jump, sensing a distinct and powerful feeling of dread, as I knew the bugs were rushing closer and closer. And if I didn't speed up my worm-like movement end up hungry yet again. So I sped up and jumped faster and faster, becoming frantic like the box I was running the marathon against, ignoring the shards of glass on the floor. My hunger propelled me further and further until I finally reached the end of my goal, the now lukewarm piece of meat laying on the floor. And although I wasn't the first to cross the finish line, the large black box that came onto the meat were quickly killed by the swoop of my hand leaving even more meat for me to enjoy. I put the meat under me and formed a ball with my body, covering every centimeter of it. Like a corrupted fetus who starts eating his mother's womb, I started eating the meat. I ate faster and faster. It was lukewarm, not properly cooked. But I forgave myself for that mistake as my hunger was satisfied so much that I allowed myself to lie down afterward. Ignoring the bugs in my house gathering around me, hoping to suck the leftovers from my mouth and skin, allowing them to dance on top of me, knowing very well that they won't find anything. And if they are foolish enough to stay after I wake up, they'll just make for a tasty snack. Which they did, as I found quite a lot of them in my hair and under my legs. So many that I didn't have to go hunting for at least a week, being fully satisfied by the numerous bugs that have revealed themselves to me after I cooked my meat. So all day I didn't have to do anything else but to lie there and wait for the bugs to come search for the lost friends to get my meal. And now being full all the time, I just lie there and observed what happened around me and the sensations in my body. And as I observed them, I noticed something odd. I noticed that there was something moving inside of me, something different from my regular bowel movement. It was weird, as if something hitched itself inside of my intestines. I could sense it stealing parts of my food, parts of my life force. How can this be? I'm sure I chewed all the bugs that I ate. So how could one of them survive in one of my intestines? How could one of them be still moving inside of me? Have my stomach acids not dissolved it? I decided to ignore it and just eat some more bugs. But for some reason, it made me weaker, as if I had the flu. That also made me hungrier. At first, I thought that eating the same bugs over and over again was just not a well-balanced diet. During my morning stroll, I found a half-eaten apple in the trash can. And after eating it, I realized that I was still hungry. And when I did, I realized that there is something wrong with me. I thought long and hard about it. And then I realized 
that there could be only one rational explanation. The butcher must have cursed me. It became even more apparent when I have observed my stool and I have seen parts of weird buck meat inside of it. As if my body didn't digest every buck that I ate, leaving parts of it there. This could not be, for the hunger inside of me was so overwhelming that surely every particle of food would be reabsorbed inside of my body. It has to be the work of some kind of magic. I decided to listen to the intuition of my body and go to the butcher and apologize for my thievery. I decide to gather as much of my fecal matter as possible and show it to the butcher. I'm sure he, being a master of food, would find some use of the processed remains inside of me, as I have heard that recycling is a very popular thing right now among the rich population. And so slowly, step by step, I walked to the butcher. My muscles were sore, my body weak, so I spilled the contents of my bag on the street. I was angry at myself for losing some of the valuable material that was supposed to evoke the forgiveness of my tormentor. I had to move forward, or else I would just get thinner and thinner until I was gone. After a few hours of walking, I finally arrived at the butcher's, and I saw that the door was open. Interpreting it as a sign from the universe, I entered the building and observed my surroundings. It was beautiful, piles of meat hanging all around me, dancing, flickering in the beautiful light surrounding the slaughterhouse. I was in awe. I was frozen. And then as I was immersed in my peaceful trance, I moved forward and watched the meat grinder grinding meat into a delicious pulp. And I sensed that someone smacked me right in the face. It was the butcher whom I tripped. He was quite angry and he cursed at me quite a lot. So I was right. He was cursing me all along. I wanted to apologize and give him the bag with the processed remains of his meat bag. Alas, he has punched me and I lost it as it fell into the meat grinder. He asked for money, but I said that I didn't have anything. In response, he said that I would have to pay in pain. And so I did. I allowed him to beat me. And I also offered him all of my clothes, which he took with a smile. So, naked, eaten, and bruised, I left the butcher, slowly crawling like a worm, jumping in the same way I jumped when I rushed towards the meat. Although now I didn't have anywhere to go to, as my house was too far away, my eyes hurt quite a lot, as if something grew inside of me, obscuring my vision, taking it away as I jumped in front of me with my now limp limbs. And as I jumped, I must have jumped onto the street, because someone has bumped me. They didn't kill me. Oh no. But even here, they're worrying about me, taking me to the hospital. While I was there, I was feed from a needle in my hand. The doctor said that there was a tapeworm inside of me, but they have removed it. But it has taken my eyesight with it. But the insurance of the man, who has almost run me over, paid for my medical expenses. And the man, having a kind heart, has helped me get some money from this day. No, I know I'll never starve to death. I asked for the worm that has put me here. The doctor listened and gave it to me in a glass jar. I was sad that I couldn't see it, but I could sense it, still moving in the jar, banging on his glass prison. I whispered to him while crying with a smile, Thank you for all of this. 
I never felt more cared for in all of my life. Saying that, I wish that more people could be blessed with such abundance. And when I heard that the whole town had a tapeworm epidemic, I realized that wishes do come true, and that I will never be alone anymore. As more and more blind people, just like me, will come to the hospital and become my friends. But the tapeworm, who still stood there in the jar next to me, will always be my best friend. Because he gave me security. Thank you for that, Matt. Um, I hesitate here. I want to be as sensitive as possible about what is said. I shall read Matt Niputin's biographical information, more or less as it was given to me, and not comment upon it or try to make it my own. First, Matt Niputin is a Pole. He lives in Poland. He is a fiction author and a recovering psychotic who uses his illness as inspiration and who prides himself in the exploration of the sensations of evil. Not general, abstract evil, he says, but the intricate experience of evil that all of us have coded into our genetic makeup. That is what I want to evoke through my stories, he says, like many paranoid psychotics with schizotypal personality disorder, I am numb by nature. And so I find that most of the stories in this world aren't stimulating enough for me. That's why I have to create my own. Matt has published two books, Creepy Stories from the Voices in Your Head and Psycho Creep, which he describes as a fictionalized autobiography. Both are available on Amazon. You can also read some of his other stories at his website. That's http colon slash slash creepystories.org. I'll put that on the Tales to Terrify homepage. Again, thank you, Matt, and thank you for narrating your story for us. Now, before we move on, I want to give you a taste of what's upcoming here at Tales to Terrify. Remember last year we did a two-part show that featured all the short fiction that had been nominated for the Bram Stoker Award by the Horror Writers Association, yes? You remember that? Well, we're doing it again this year. Access has been given to all five shortlisted tales. All have been recorded, and we will begin to air them very soon. Tell your friends. And for the moment, have a listen to this. Tales to Terrify and the District of Wonders Present the 2013 Stoker Award nominees. The thing that fell from the sky also returned, also went back. 
Vermont Avenue, where the zombies are drifting thick as fog through the cracked and weedy streets. Every story. I carefully run the tip of the sharp oyster knife through the red scar around her skull. There is relatively little blood as I cut through the tissue. All the terror. The bomb blew, and his lower body evaporated. He died at that moment. But in my dreams, he lives for a few more seconds. We survive as a pocket of humanity in a deluge of green terror. Cut off from the north, facing a relentless enemy from the south. Listen now at TalesToTerrify.com. Well, not quite now, but very soon. In a week or two. And one more thing before we get into the fiction of the evening. We watched several films this past week, and without doing a full-bodied review, let me offer two suggestions, just for your viewing, and maybe for your acquisition. Both films are from the 1980s, and both are now available on DVD. If you're fond of stop-motion animation in the style of Jan Svankmeyer or the Brothers Quay, I heartily recommend The Labyrinth of Darkness. It's a disc of short animated pieces by Yuri Barta. The collection includes a 55-minute short feature based on the Pied Piper of Hamelin. Now, the Pied Piper is a dark tale to begin with. I assume you're familiar with it. Hamelin has rats. Hamelin hires Piper to catch rats. Hamelin reneges. Piper steals Hamelin's children and seals them in cave. Forever. The end. Goethe did a version of the story. So did the brothers Grimm. So did Robert Browning. Barta's version takes us even deeper into the darkness. The cast is made up of a nasty wooden twitch of thuggish puppets with nightmare faces. They speak in guttural, vaguely Germanic, strangely central Euro-nonsense words. The, the world of the film is a shadowy, angular, Caligari sort of place. And I, I won't tell you how this version differs from the one to which you're most likely accustomed. That's part of the, um, the fun of the piece. But I think, as a Nook regular, you'll appreciate it. No, the Piper is not a psychotic pedophile, but there is darkness enough here, and the rats are real. The second film, to Celia Mahler and I recommend, is one which I saw first in, I think it was 1989, and have wanted to have another look at ever since, but it's not been available. Now it is. The Navigator, a medieval odyssey, is from New Zealand, it is the cold, dark, brutal 14th century. A small copper mining community in the far north of England, Cumbria for the geographically hip among you, learns that the Black Death is coming to them. A 12-year-old boy has a vision. The plague will pass their community if they make a pilgrimage and raise a cross of Cumbrian copper on the new cathedral in a distant city he has seen in his dreams. A delegation is sent, literally to tunnel through the earth, reach the great city, and save the town. And they must do it all 
in one night. Virtually the whole film is a nighttime experience, and it is beautifully shot in mixed color and black and white, and it follows the pilgrims and their child navigator from 14th century England into 20th century New Zealand. No, the navigator is not a simple strangers in a strange land tale in which medieval bumpkins are awed by planes, trains, submarines. Now it's something deeper, more introspective, and finally, something sad and disquieting. The film has been, as I say, virtually unavailable, at least in the U.S., since 1990 or so. So see it, acquire it, share it. Okay, more fiction. Our second tale of the evening is a disquieting little piece by Ms. Lou Morgan. Lou grew up in Wales and studied medieval literature at University College London. She now lives in the south of England with her family. And here is Lou Louise Morgan's At the Sign of the Black Dove. I feel sick. Lightweight. No, seriously, what the hell's in those? Hope gestured vaguely at the round of drinks Jude had set on the table. They were an interesting shade of green, much like everyone who was drinking them. Jude shrugged. The new barman says it's the house special. Yeah, they're special, all right, said Charlie. Maya beamed self-righteously from behind her orange juice. The Black Dove had, over the years, become their safe house. It was where they commiserated and where they celebrated. It was where they hid from their parents, and later from their partners, and it was where they usually wound up on a Friday, just because they'd made it through another week. This time the occasion was Jude's. At long last he'd left the office job he'd spent four whole years complaining about, and he didn't intend to let them go home until they'd responded accordingly. Hope eyed her drink and then poked it with a straw. Oh, come on, they're not that bad, Jude said. You think it's going to bite you? I'm just checking whether it dissolves the plastic. Stop being such a killjoy. I think it's all right. Jude took a sip and swallowed a cough. Once you get used to the taste. And did the barman happen to tell you what's in them? Charlie asked, swilling his drink around the glass and taking another sip. Jude shrugged. Nope. Secret recipe, apparently. But I saw him putting the absinthe bottle. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. ...back on the shelf, so that explains a lot, Charlie said, shaking his head. Still, you've got to be in it to win it, right? He downed his cocktail. Maya's eyes widened. Was that wise? Probably not. Whatever was in the drinks, it certainly made the time go by. At the third round of house specials, the usual Friday night crowd had thinned considerably, and the noise level in the bar had dropped to a bearable level. Maya and Charlie were deep in debate about what exactly was the best flavour of Jelly Baby, and it sounded like Maya's argument for orange was outclassing anything Charlie could come up with for yellow, and Hope was staring at the barman. Doesn't he look really familiar, she said, as much to herself as to Jude. I hadn't thought about it. Jude leaned forward and peered round Hope. The barman had his back to them, checking one of the spirit optics behind the bar. If he was honest, Jude hadn't really noticed him, or at least he hadn't noticed him as much as Hope had. The most immediately striking thing about him was the blue streak dyed into his black hair. Like most of the staff at the Black Dove, he wore a black shirt and a collection of beads and bracelets that rattled against each other like loose bones. His rolled-up sleeves revealed a flash of red and black ink as he reached up to adjust the optic. Hope sighed. You've got to be kidding me. Jude nudged her in the ribs and she smiled as she nudged him back. You, he said pointedly, have a boyfriend, do you not? Hey, I can look. Sure, and if it was me eyeing up a woman behind the bar... Then it would be deeply offensive, absolutely. But because it's you, then it's fine. Yes, clever boy. Carry on and get me a packet of twiglets, would you? Jude wasn't quite sure when it happened. He remembered the barman ringing the bell, his voice carrying across the bar. That's it, boys and girls. Last call. He remembered Charlie's face swimming in and out of focus, hope suddenly lurching forwards, slumping over the table. He remembered the world tipping, Maya leaning over him, her eyes larger than the moon and shining like all the stars in the sky together. Jude? Jude, can you hear? And then he heard nothing more. It was dark when he opened his eyes, and Jude had no idea where he was. He was lying on something rough and slightly sticky. It smelled of stale beer and old sweat and other worse things. Everything was quiet, and his first clear thought was to wonder exactly how much he'd had to drink. And there was the answer. He was still in the Black Dove. The floor of the Black Dove. That was not good. His head hammered as he sat up. That was even less good. The room was almost entirely dark. Heavy curtains pulled across the windows. One dim shaft of light had found its way through, and dust motes danced in it, spiralling towards the ceiling. Jude listened, his ears straining to hear whether anyone else was in the room with him. Nothing. He rubbed his eyes like that would make a difference. So, he'd passed out? He couldn't for the life of him think what else might have happened. Why did the others leave him? How had the barman not noticed him when he had locked up? More importantly, how exactly was he going to get out without breaking a window? Jude had woken up in more than a few odd places with a steaming hangover in his time, but this... This pretty much took all the biscuits. A groan from somewhere to his right made Jude twitch. He wasn't alone, after all. So who was it? Hope? Maya? 
He reached out a hand, blinking in the dark, groping towards the sound. His fingers touched carpet, 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 something he hoped was a twiglet, a glass lying on its side, a small puddle where it had fallen, then cloth, something firm but soft beneath it, a leg, an arm. He wasn't sure. Slowly he moved his hand forward until it tangled in thick, curly hair. Maya. He whispered her name, his voice sticky in his throat. She didn't answer. He moved his fingers around her head, through her hair, searching for her shoulder, and instead touched the bare skin of her face. She was cold. He snapped his hand away, and then slowly inched it back towards her to check what he already knew. She seemed impossibly distant as he reached out for her, further than she had been. But just as he was beginning to doubt himself, his fingers found something soft and wet and undeniably cold. Short hair and cold flesh. It was all he could do not to scream. Maya was lying dead on the floor, and he was touching her open eyes. Jude's stomach churned violently, and the taste of bile rose in his throat. A groan came again, louder this time. Hello? He could hear his own panic. Jude? Hope's reply was muffled and slow, groggy. She sounded like he felt. What happened? Do you... I can't... You don't remember? I'll be honest. It's best you don't. A man's voice. There was a grating sound, and light filled the room. Jude threw his hands over his eyes to shield them. More grating noises, then footsteps, and a quiet dragging sound from somewhere nearby. The clink of glass on glass. Jude lowered his hand. The curtains were open now, and a dull grey light filtered into the bar. Hope was sprawled on the floor a few feet ahead of him, her hair across her face. She was moving, barely. Maya still lay on the floor between them. There was no sign of Charlie. The barman leaned on the bar and raised his glass. He smiled at Jude, then threw back his head and drained the contents, wiping his mouth and banging the glass back down on the counter. Morning, chaps. Can I tempt you with a quick eye-opener? Jude's arms and legs were moving of their own accord, pushing him across the floor towards Hope, dragging her to her feet, staggering towards the door, all the while fighting the pitch and toss of the room and the nausea that sucked at him with each step. From behind the bar, the barman spoke. Wouldn't do that if I were you. Your mate already tried it. Don't think he took to it. He watched as Jude's fingers closed around the handle. For one awful moment, Jude was afraid the door would be locked, that it wouldn't open, that they were trapped there with the stranger behind the bar. But as it happened, the door swung open easily, and, hope staggering with him, he tumbled out into the street. Half walking, half dragging them both to the pavement, Jude finally lost control. Hope caught herself and stood up as he bent double and wretched his stomach heaving up the curdled remnants of the previous night's drinking. Jude? Hope was talking to him. Jude. Jude. Hope was still talking to him. He hauled himself upright, wiping his mouth. Are you... Look. She was standing at the edge of the pavement, looking down the road. She was pointing, and her hand was shaking. Jude looked. She took a step closer to stand right beside him, as he tried to understand what it was that he saw. The light dyed Hope's face a dirty shade of red, cast unfamiliar shadows which skipped and jittered across the pavement. Ahead, the road snaked down to the edge of the promenade, where the concrete dropped away into the sea, just like it always had. The sea stretched out to the horizon, just like it always had, but the water was motionless, 
the crests of waves frozen in glittering white peaks. The bodies of seagulls were piled on the beach where they had fallen, their wings still spread. Red clouds swarmed overhead, and a peculiar mist hovered over the edge of the water. There was a thickness to the air, and a faint buzzing sound that scratched at the inside of Jude's head. But otherwise there was silence. No birds. No cars. No buses or bikes. Nothing at all. Nothing, and no one. It was just the two of them, alone. Side by side, Jude and Hope stood and looked and tried to understand. I don't suppose you... Jude couldn't finish the sentence. Hope nodded. She was pale and her whole body trembled. I think it's the end of the world. The end of the world. Jude frowned. It was not something he had expected to hear or to say. The end of the world. The words felt cold, wrong in his mouth, too heavy, too strange. We need to find Charlie. The end of the world. Where is he? Did you just hear yourself? The end of the world? Look, Jude, she waved her arms at the sea. What else do you think that is? It's not real. It feels pretty fucking real to me. How? How can it be real? I don't know. Hope looked from the sea to the black dove, its metal sign swinging in a faint breeze. Where is everyone? Everyone? Jude had pulled his phone out and was peering at the screen. It stared back at him blankly. No service. Of course not. It's Saturday morning, isn't it? She said. Where is everyone? I... And what's... Hope crouched down, her fingers brushing the surface of the road. Her fingertips came away sticky with crimson. I think Maya's dead, said Jude. Hope stared at the blood on her fingertips. I said, I think Maya's dead. I heard you. And that doesn't bother you? She was lying on the floor, and and she was cold, and that doesn't scare the shit out of you? Hope didn't respond. What kind of answer could she give? What was there to say? Instead, she brushed her hair away from her eyes. We need to go back inside. No. Jude. No. No. I'm not going back in there. I'm going home. And you're coming with me. What about Charlie? Don't you get it? Jude's voice was rising, bouncing back off the bloodied concrete. Maya's dead. Everybody's gone. God only knows what happened to Charlie, and he's dead too, for all we know. We have to think about ourselves, Hope. We need to get out of here. We can't leave. Are you out of your mind? Hope, the barman, he said something. Something about our mate. He said... Jude heard the barman's voice echoing in his head. He said, Your mate already tried it and didn't take to it. He meant the door. He meant Charlie came out here and something happened to him. Jude finished her sentence without meaning to. Or he went back inside. He could still be in there, Hope gasped. Jude felt the blood drain from his face. Christ, he could still be in the dove. We have to go back in there. Hope set her mouth in a firm line and Jude knew there was no point in arguing. There didn't seem to be much point in anything. Above them, the silhouette of the black dove still swung back and forth in its brackets, creaking gently. The barman was sitting cross-legged on the bar, pouring an evil-looking liquid out of a narrow bottle and into a shot glass. He glanced up at them as the door closed. 
You two back again? So soon? Where is he? Now that's a broad question. Very metaphysical. He waved the glass at them. Even across the room, Jude could smell it. Rotten and oily, like decay. Our friend, where is he? Hope was doing her best to hide the tremor in her voice, but Jude could hear it. He didn't doubt the other man could too. The barman blinked at her, then lifted his glass and tipped his head back. Whatever he was drinking, it was thick and oozed towards his mouth, almost like it was crawling. Jude shook that thought out of his head. You want a drink? No? Shame. Still, nice place, this. The barman spoke as though he hadn't heard hope at all. He sniffed and looked around the bar, running his fingers along the woodwork. Not like the last place. I was at the Seven Stars before. It's not far from here. You might know it. Quite a crowd they had there. Slightly rowdy on occasion, but harmless enough. He sniffed again and rubbed his nose with his knuckle. Bit samey, mind. Now this place. I like this place. I like you. He looked straight at Jude, and for a moment their eyes met. Jude saw something in the barman's gaze. Through it, a flash of darkness in a blood-red sky. And Jude was no longer in the Black Dove, but somewhere else. A landscape torn by storms and blasted by ash and fire. A place that reeked of sulphur and fear. Jude came back to the world with a jerk as the barman smacked his lips together and then slid off the top of the bar to lean against it. So, your friend. You said he, so I'll assume you meant the one who made it. He half smiled. You'll find him in the cellar. He's alive? Well, that's up to him. He gestured to a doorway beside the bar. It was dark, very dark. Be my guest. Jude felt hope wind her fingers through his. It was almost funny. All those years he'd wondered what it might take. Apparently, it took the end of the world. Together, they edged past the barman, feeling his eyes follow them, and towards the cellar. The doorway opened straight onto the descending stairs. If he squinted, Jude was sure he could make out a faint glow somewhere below, but nothing bright enough to guide them down. Hope went first, fumbling beside the door for the light switch. She didn't find it. How about we use your phone? she asked. I left mine at home. Jude fished his mobile out of his pocket again. Holding it at arm's length, he used the screen as a makeshift torch, and together they picked their way down the stairs. There were stones set into the plaster of the walls, cobbles of a sort. The pale light from the phone's screen made them appear to bubble and shift as Jude and Hope passed. There were no sounds coming from the cellar, and Jude tried very, very hard not to imagine what they were going to find when they got to the bottom. Instead, he thought about putting one foot on one step, and then the next and the next. Hope's fingers were still tightly curled around his, her palm clammy. The stairs ended at a brick floor. Just ahead of them was another door, this one slightly ajar. Dim light seeped around it, and for the first time Jude heard something. A wet, slippery sound that set his teeth on edge. Hope pulled him forward, and towed the door open with her foot. The room was a small, damp space with an arched ceiling, and more doors leading off to the left and right. The chute of the barrel drop from the street, its door padlocked, stood to one side. The dim light they'd seen came from a handful of candlesticks on a shelf, the candles flickering with unsettling red flames. Charlie stood balanced on a chair in the centre of the room, a rope knotted tightly around his neck. Overhead, a stout metal joist cut across the vault of the roof, the rope slung over it. 
The other end had been pulled taut and tied to a metal wall bracket. Charlie, Hope lunged forward, but Jude pulled at her hand. Wait. Charlie showed no sign of recognising them. He just stared vacantly ahead. Are you serious? Hope turned to him, her eyes blazing. We have to get him down. What if he slips? Look. Jude pointed to the feet of the chair. I don't think we're meant to get him down. The chair Charlie stood on was surrounded by frogs. The floor was crawling with them, piled two or three deep, croaking as they slid slimily over one another in a drab mass of mottled green flesh, the noise that Jude had heard. Hope pulled at Jude's hand. They're just frogs. Come on, we can reach him. As Hope spoke, Charlie shuddered, his whole body convulsed and strained at the rope around his neck. Jude kept hold of Hope's hand, trying not to gag on the smell, cloying and damp and sticky, the stink of wet clay and rotten leaves. Charlie's mouth opened. At first it looked like a shadow on his lip, a shape cast by the flickering flames. But slowly it stretched out, pulling itself towards them. A leg, a frog's leg. Charlie's mouth opened wider than should have been physically possible, and he retched. The frog, huge and slimy, flew out, landing at their feet with a slapping sound. It croaked at them and then slipped into the mess of amphibious bodies. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Hope's hand went limp in Jude's grasp as Charlie began to shake again and the croaking increased in volume, louder and louder, the sound bouncing off the walls and the ceiling until it filled the room, filled Jude's head, forcing him away. Jude pulled Hope back, out of the room. They could still hear the frogs croaking as they ran up the cellar stairs. The barman was waiting for them, glass in hand. Jude let go of Hope, and she sagged against the wall and down to the floor, whispering to herself. Jude dropped to his knees beside her, calling her name, his fingers on her cheek. She didn't respond, just stared blankly past him, muttering all the while. He caught snatches of words, random at first, but soon falling into a pattern. Father. Heaven. Trespass. Kingdom. Father. Heaven. Trespass. Kingdom. Over and over and over again. Jude knew that it was useless, just as he had known it was useless to try and reach Charlie in the cellar. Hope was gone. All that was left was the black dove. The empty town. The flaming sky. The barman. He turned to the man behind him. What is this? Who? What are you? Your girl had it right. End of the world. And me? I'm your host. The barman bowed mockingly. Fuck off. You want to watch your language, Jude? You have no idea who you're talking to. Why don't you just tell me? Here's a better idea. How about I show you? The barman held out his free hand to Jude. His bracelets rattled eerily as he moved. There was red dirt under his fingernails. At least, it could have been dirt. Jude felt the strangest sensation somewhere in the pit of his stomach. Not fear, exactly. More like inevitability. A numbness. A knowledge that he was not in control. That he never had been. The barman watched Jude's thoughts scatter and laughed. It was not a pleasant laugh. Go on already. What's the worst that can happen? Jude took a step towards him, his hands held out slightly, unsure, and the barman reached forward, clamping it between his own. Hope fell away. The black dove fell away. 
The world fell away, and Jude was standing on a narrow causeway with utter darkness around him. There was nothing else, just the blackness above him and the stones beneath his feet. As he peered into the darkness, though, he began to make out shapes in the dark, boiling clouds and figures that moved at unnatural angles, in unnatural ways, that rushed by and were gone. And ahead, Jude could see the path stretching out before him, straight, narrow, long, endlessly, achingly long and lonely, so lonely. Jude jerked his hands out of the barman's. The black-haired man watched him with curious eyes. Jude felt a need to say something, anything. She's not my girl. I know. What? What happened? I, I don't understand. That's a little arrogant, isn't it? Why, do you think you're meant to? I thought... You didn't, though, did you? Go on, admit it. You never thought about it. Not once. And why would you? Too busy living to think about anything else. This is not a dream you can shrug off with a coffee in the morning. You won't be waking up, Jude. No one will. Not today. Not tomorrow. Not ever. Then what's the point? The barman shrugged. What do you want from me? Jude's voice was weak. The barman uncorked the bottle and poured a measure of the thick, slow liquid into the shot glass he was holding. The beads around his wrist clattered as he moved. Don't you know? He slid the glass across the bar towards Jude. I want you to have a drink, Jude. That's my undergraduate experience for you. Bars of that nature, mornings of that sort. Ah, youth. Thank you for it, Lou. Lou Morgan's first novel, Blood and Feathers, was published by Solaris Books in August of 2012. Its sequel, Blood and Feathers Rebellion, is scheduled for release this summer. Tonight's tale... At the Sign of the Black Dove was originally published in the anthology Pandemonium, Stories of the Apocalypse. In addition, Lou Morgan's short stories have appeared in anthologies by Solaris and P.S. Publishing. Ms. Morgan has an Amazon webpage. You can find it when you're on the Amazon site, or if you want to know to what sound mix she writes, or if you've ever wondered what is Resurrection Cheese, Stop by her blog. That's www.loumorgan.co.uk. Again, that's on the Tales to Terrify homepage. At the Sign of the Black Dove was read for us tonight by Mr. Simon Hildebrandt. Just to nudge you, by the way, Simon is the host of the District of Wonder's own Protecting Project Pulp. He is Australian, and in addition to narrating and hosting... He is a programmer who builds websites for money and a gamer who games for pleasure. He's narrated many stories for Starship Sofa and its associated podcasts, 
and has also contributed a series of articles about the intersection of games and science fiction under the title Gaming the Future. He's lived and worked in various places around the world, and currently Sydney is his home, where he lives with his wife and son. Go have a listen to him over in the pulp neighborhood of the district. And that will do it for tonight. I hope the tales and the air-conditioning machine have kept you chilled through this evening in the nook, and I would now have you be up and doing, bright and chipper. And as you walk home, and I have mentioned this before, if you thirst or become a bit peckish, please avoid the local hostelries. A lot of the old places that we've trusted have gone bust in recent years, and in these hard times you never can tell about the new places that slip in and open so quickly in their stead. We are, after all, on the border here between Crime City and Terror, so best wait to sate yourself until you get home. Much better to control your input on a night of tapeworms and apocalyptic visions, yes? Yes. Just go home. Have a sip, maybe, of warm milk. Then crawl into bed. Forget that green drink and the frozen ocean and the scarlet sky and have yourself some pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. DistrictofWonders.com. Thank you for listening.